1: That sound you're hearing, a helicopter and a grenade being launched, is from a video that was posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, earlier this week. It was posted with the caption, New video, Hamas fighters shooting down Israel war helicopter in Gaza. It's been viewed more than 2.5 million times, reposted more than 2,500 times. Except it's totally fake. It's from a video game called Arma 3. It's not in Gaza. It's not in Israel. Nothing about it has anything to do with the current conflict. The video now has a community note attached explaining this, but not before it bounced all around the internet. Other videos, horrifying real ones from Israel and Gaza, are all over X, with little or no warning. It makes the platform a place people used to go for news into this ghastly brew of suffering and confusion over what's real, what's not, and what's being posted just for clicks. I wanted to understand how it got this bad. So I called up journalist Casey Newton, who writes the newsletter Platformer. Casey says, there are three big reasons.
2: One is that since he took over the platform, Elon Musk has systematically gotten rid of the vast majority of the people whose job it used to be to prevent false things from going viral on the platform. Another reason is that Musk has repeatedly endorsed accounts that are known spreaders of misinformation. And a third reason is that after eliminating all of the verification badges from the vetted journalists who used to have them on the platform. He started selling those badges to people for $8 a pop. And then he started paying those people based on how many views they got. That is just a recipe for having a lot of misinformation on your platform.
1: Is this the worst you've ever seen it?
2: I mean, there's probably a case to be made that content moderation in general was worse at Twitter in like 2012 or something when people just weren't paying attention to this stuff at all. But at the same time, the platform was smaller than, uh, it didn't have a ranked feed, and so there are now systems on Twitter that amplify bad stuff. Uh, that are much more robust than they were like 10 years ago. So, yeah, I think it's probably pretty easy to make a case that uh, in in the ways that matter, this is the worst that uh, this particular network has ever been.
1: Today on the show, the idea of a global town square was probably always a fantasy. But the war between Israel and Hamas now shows how broken Elon Musk's platform really is. So Maybe you weren't constantly online during the Arab Spring, but I can tell you that there were moments when it felt like we were getting real news from real people on social media. And when wars broke out, in Syria, in Crimea, Twitter was one of the places where you could get good information, in part because it was up to the minute, also because there were teams of people within the company whose job it was to sift the real from the fake, not to mention the automated systems to manage it all. Of course, platforms have always been plagued with mis and disinformation, but there were also thousands of journalists and verified organizations that users could trust. All of that is largely gone now. I wonder if you could give me a sense of what type of content moderation does exist at X.
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you are posting child sexual abuse material, for example, they will make some efforts to catch that. They have some automated tools that are looking for uh, terrorist content, for example. It's illegal to host terrorist content, so they still have to pay kind of glancing attention to that. And, you know, I'm sure they're still removing some posts and and some accounts, Um, but again, the teams have been decimated and Musk spent a lot of the past couple of years talking about uh, the fact that he just kind of doesn't really believe in content moderation in general, uh, with the exception of his platform's community notes feature, which is kind of this crowdsourced way of fact-checking. So if you browse through the site, you will surely see those notes notes uh, attached to viral tweets that sometimes push back on their false claims.
1: What does that mean if you are, you know, trying to get real-time information about this conflict, if you are someone who still has the muscle memory of going to Twitter X for news?
2: Well, I think a lot of people are, are having this kind of shock because this is maybe one of the first crises since Elon took over a year ago where people are really craving Uh, And up to the second understanding of what's happening. And they really want to see those first person accounts, right? They want to go beyond the headlines and see what it looks like on the ground. And those people are finding that they're not able to do that in the way that they once were. And so it has caused uh, what uh, Ezra Klein has called an exodus shock, where people are realizing, oh, this place isn't actually for me anymore. Uh, What are my alternatives?
1: You and I talked about this a little bit um, with regard to Ukraine, but it it does feel like the past week or so has been palpably worse. I, I wonder if you've thought about that or thought about why you think that is.
2: Well, I think one thing that is happening, and we know this um, from a report that Sheriff Frankel did in the New York Times, is that Hamas is seeding Twitter with videos of violence as part of its uh, campaign of terrorism. Hmm. And so because Twitter does not have the same tools and teams in place that it once did to prevent that stuff from spreading, uh, to remove it quickly from the platform, people are seeing a lot more violence and gore, I think, this time than they did in the early days of that Ukraine conflict.
1: Let's talk about engagement. Because I think it's just so fundamental to how this platform operates right now, how all all platforms operate. But I wonder why misinformation, inflammatory content, gory content, whatever it is, gets so much engagement.
2: Well, you know, something that trolls do now in the aftermath of a calamity is they will find old videos that... You know, look like they they might be related to the current crisis, and then they post them. You know, so we've seen like videos of fires in Algeria, uh, or like I think we saw like a fireworks celebration that was repurposed uh, to, to look like a bombing um, in the in the current crisis. People have even posted video game footage um, on X in recent days and trying yeah. to pass it off as combat, uh, on, on the ground in Israel. And, uh, you know th- this technique is effective because you see a video clip. There's no real context. Someone is telling you that this is breaking news. There's no meaningful system of verification on X, and so that's just a recipe for chaos. But it, but again, what's interesting here is that Musk has now created a financial incentive for people to do this because the more views they get on their posts, presumably the more they'll be
1: paid. That's what I wanted to ask you about do we think people are getting paid for that? Like, if if you're the person who posted that, you know, video game clip with somebody holding a RPG launcher, are you getting paid? Quite
2: possibly. Um, the system that they have set up is still somewhat opaque. They did a big payout to creators earlier this year as a, an effort took to uh, encourage more people to become paid subscribers. They then updated that plan to say... Only views from verified subscribers would count toward your engagement goal. So it's people paying $8, broadcasting to people who are paying $8. So we know that there are not that many paid subscribers to Twitter. And so my assumption is that those people are not going to make out like bandits. But, you know, uh, Musk is very capricious. He changes the rules for things all the time. And I could very easily see him deciding he wanted to pay out more or less uh, in any given week on any given subject, depending on his mood.
1: You have spent, I'm going to guess, probably more time than you would like thinking and writing about Elon Musk. How much of this is driven by him personally?
2: Uh, I mean, basically 100%. There is no other person who has a meaningful vote on what happens on... X. Um, he is the person who decided to get rid of the Twitter branding. He's the person who decided to get rid of the old verification system. He's the person who decided most recently to take headlines off of article previews in the right. feed. Um, so now, as you scroll through, unless the the post itself contains the headline, you're just sort of clicking on a mystery box. These, these are all Musk's ideas. And I think it's you know it's it's important to say that um Musk has said what he wants Twitter to be and while he will sort of make noises about it being a global town square he seems a lot more interested in it becoming a payments platform, a jobs board, a place to make audio and video calls. Right, you start to look at all of these things and to me, there's just no reason to have any expectation that he wants to operate a news platform like Twitter used to be. So, you know, in my mind, that story is is already over. And I think what we've seen over the past few weeks is the sort of the stragglers and the diehards who are just waking up to a reality that has actually been in place for more than six months.
1: So those of us who are just sort of flexing our old Twitter muscles are doing it in, in some place that's been cleared out a long time ago.
2: Yeah, I mean and 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 I get it. You know, who wants to go learn a different platform? Who wants to start again? Who wants to build a new audience? What if there is no one there for them to be broadcasting to? I get it. It's exhausting. And it's also sad because Twitter for all its flaws, at its best was was a really useful thing. Yeah. But it is literally dead. Twitter does not exist anymore. And every few weeks or months, we get some new thing that reminds us, oh, yes, it's actually dead. And some new group of people says, well, maybe I should find somewhere else to spend my time. But in my mind, that's a good thing, because I don't really think anybody should be spending their time on X.
1: I guess m- maybe the reason this feels different is that the consequences feel so dire, are so dire. And and it feels a little bit like there's an immorality in remaining or or not not walking away?
2: Yes, certainly I feel that way. You know, I basically stopped using Twitter uh, late last fall after Musk smeared Yoel Roth, uh, the former head of trust and safety on the platform. I just sort of felt like whatever this thing used to be for me is dead. So uh, I do post links to my newsletter and my podcast, but I don't engage with anyone on the platform and I spend way, way less time reading it. Uh, my good friend, Walt Mossberg, legendary tech reporter... He recently deactivated his account, was just kind of like, I I can't be around this guy. And Walt walked away from 800,000 followers, and he posted on threads and said, if I can do this, you can too. I I found that very powerful. Um, You know, I sort of suspect in the next couple months, I'll I'll, uh, even stop just posting links to things. Um, But yeah, I I don't really think there is any moral justification for for being on X. And I think that for those who feel like they still need it for one thing or another, to the extent that you can't get that anymore, you have even fewer reasons to show up.
1: Earlier this week, the European Union's commissioner who oversees the Digital Services Act demanded that X remove graphic images and videos from Hamas, as well as disinformation about the war or face fines. In response, CEO Linda Iaccarino said the company had removed hundreds of pieces of content. She added, quote, There is no place on X for terrorist organizations or violent extremist groups, and we continue to remove such accounts in real time, including proactive efforts. I asked Casey what he made of that, if this was just the last gasps of the old system of content moderation.
2: Sort of, although, you know, this is a tricky conversation to have because no one really agrees on how much bad stuff is allowed to be on a platform. You know? And if you're a politician and you open your feed and you see three bad things, they might have. Erase ninety nine point nine percent of things, but you will still have had a bad experience, and hmm. so you'll send an angry letter. So we see this sort of thing in the regulatory debates over social networks all the time. At the same, at the same time, you know, when you talk to like researchers or people who ha- had been using this platform to do what they call open source intelligence, which is basically just looking at public posts to try to see what you can figure out about what's going on uh, in wartime and sort of other high stakes situations, they will say that it's much less usable than it can be. They mourn the loss of a true verification system. They feel like they're spending more time having to debunk stuff uh, than they used to. Um, So the the people who sort of care the most about this and work on this the hardest are saying it is worse than it used to be. It would be surprising if uh, after having eliminated almost all of the people who work on this stuff, that X was doing even half as good a job as it used to.
1: What is the use case for X right now? It's a
2: payments pl- processor and a jobs board, Lizzie. Like you know, that's you, you need to hire. Go to X. Uh, you want to you want to you want to you pay your friend but not use Venmo for some reason? Go to X. That's what. it is. Hey, you want to make a video call to somebody whose phone number you don't have? Go to X. It's uh, that that's the vision. It's a little bit of everything, um, and like again, like I I love this because. Once I realized I didn't want to be on X, I did still want something that was like Twitter. Yeah. And the biggest impediment to me getting what I want is people using X like it's Twitter. So over the past week, we have just moved much further in that direction because more and more people are waking up every day to the fact that Twitter is dead.
1: When we come back, are the alternatives really viable?
3: That's what you wrote about this week.
1: What is being on threads like right now? It
2: it is uncannily like being on Twitter a year ago. You know, I show up. Most of my peers in the tech press are there. They're posting links to things. Their readers are replying. There are little memes that are popping up. Like a week ago, everyone was ser- sharing screenshots of their phone. There's kind of a main conversation of the day. Over the past couple of days, it's been... Um, is news allowed on threads or not? And what should, what should threads do about amplifying news? And it's kind of taken over the entire platform as people d- debate this. And these are the kinds of dynamics that you used to see on Twitter, you know, just people, you know, kind of a, a, self-selected group of news junkies, people in media politics, a little bit in entertainment, showing up to hash things out, get a sense of the conversation, interact with their audiences. And that's the stuff that I like. So, You know, I think after a month or so of feeling pretty quiet and stagnant, the past week or so on threads has been much, much, much more vibrant and while the company won't tell me how many new users they've added. Yeah, that was my
1: next question.
2: Yeah. So they won't say, but like, you know, my my following was like basically flat. Like, you know, I would go a week and I'd maybe add, you know, 30 or, or 50 followers, even if I was posting pretty aggressively. Um, but over the past week, you know, a handful of posts and I added like 1,500 followers. So, you know, it, it's just one person and you, you don't want to extrapolate too much from, from that data point. But uh, when I sort of talked about this, on threads, many other people responded to me and said, oh, yeah, like my following has gone way up. So I, I do think something's happening over there.
1: Well, the news conversation is a really interesting one, and I, I want to dig into that a little bit. Adam Masseri, head of Instagram, posted on threads, we're not anti-news. News is clearly already on threads. People can share news. People can follow accounts that share news. We're not going to get in the way of that either but we're also not going to amplify news on the platform. To do so would be too risky given the maturity of the platform, the downsides of overpromising and the stakes. Can you unpack what that means?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, you know, Adam Masseri, uh, in particular has had a long history of jousting with the news business. He used to run the news feed at Facebook. And there were just, you know, million headaches that came with that. Facebook had a long era of overpromising journalists. And then it sort of became clear that the interests of Facebook and journalists were not super aligned. And so there's just like a a lot of history of like bad blood and and scar tissue there. And so they go to start their little text-based social network and at first, they did not really want it to be a news thing. I, I think they sincerely thought, we're going to take all these like really cute, fun creators on Instagram, and we're just going to like have them start posting in text instead of pictures and video and see what happens. And... Whenever you start something like this, you don't know how people are going to use it. I don't really know what the version of threads looks like where it's a bunch of creators like posting in text about their, you know, makeup tutorials and their IKEA shopping halls. Um, Maybe that would have been a good time, but it didn't really happen. But at the same time, there has been this need in the world for something like Twitter. And so, of course, all the journalists show up when they start, start start posting their news. And so if you're meta, you're kind of at this crossroads where you have the vision of this thing that you wanted to build that it doesn't really seem like people want. And then you have this other thing that people desperately want you to build that has this sort of long and dark history for your company.
1: Yeah, I mean, meta's gotten burned meddling around in news.
2: Yeah, so that probably doesn't feel like a great choice. but. In, I think, the most important ways for as controversial as this topic has been, it's also already been decided. If you give people a box to type text in and you let them add links, what they are going to post and discuss is the news, right? Like, that is what there are links to on the internet, is news. So some people will post links to things that are not news, and some people won't post news at all, but a lot of people are going to be posting news. And so, I and I don't believe this is true, but a funny thought I have had is like, if I were Adam Misery, the way that I would get every journalist in the world posting on my platform is saying this is not a place for news, <laughs> because then you have all the journalists saying, we're going to show you Misery, right? And they all show up, and next thing you know, they've like captured like the entire uh, you know uh, elite press
1: corps. What does Meta do with that? Like clearly, there is a demand for old Twitter w- with all of its problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, like the the thing that made. Twitter interesting insofar as it was interesting was that it just kind of set the global daily news agenda. It was always a horrible business. It always had terrible leadership. But it did do that, right? It got an elite group of users who kind of uh, set the day's conversation. It was an engine of culture. It was an engine of breaking news. And there is a kind of clout that comes with that. There is... um, there's cultural impact. There's even a sense of coolness that that attached to Twitter that just frankly has not attached to anything Meta has done in a really long time. And so my suspicion has been that if a critical mass of journalists gets on there and an an even bigger uh, audience follows them there and you start to replicate these dynamics where the news is breaking on threads and memes are being born on threads... Uh, and it and it starts to kind of set that uh, daily news agenda, I think Meta will be really excited about that, right? Who doesn't want to own a property that is setting the agenda, that is the place where famous people are interacting, right? Um, there's a lot of upside for for Meta in that. There's a lot of risk too, but when you look back through their history and you see how many times they tried to create a Twitter-like thing and failed – now they're actually onto something, and I have a hard time believing they're not going to want to go further in that
1: direction. You know, the flip side of that elite capture and journalists and celebrities and what have you is is the other thing that I think made Twitter really vibrant is the ability of random people, regular people to type their thoughts, to point a camera phone at something. Is there any evidence that that is happening on threads?
2: I think so. I mean, when you open up threads, you do not default to the feed of people that you're following. It just defaults to some algorithmic recommendations. And I do see uh, average citizens in there, and I imagine that over time we'll see more. It's very much a TikTok-like approach to a text-based network, right? Instead of having to know who to follow... Meta is going to figure that out for you. You start clicking on links and liking posts and replying to people, and it's just going to kind of build the feed for you. So if that comes to pass, there should be room for people that today we've never heard of to rise up on that platform and become successful. And that will actually be one of the big tests of this platform, is does that start happening? Because the only successful social platforms have been places where that happens
1: before I came into the studio to talk to you I got a DM on X from a dad who was who was actually asking me for help in keeping his teens from seeing some of the worst stuff that's circulating on that platform the the fake videos or the really awful real ones and it it just made me wonder like what to do do with that now? This thing, this, this like great 2010s social media connects us all thing feels so broken.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have such a great tip for this dad. Delete X from your teen's phone. Like they don't need it anymore. There's nothing on it for them. You know, or short of that, I don't know, maybe there's some, you know, meme accounts that they want to still follow there. They want to use it to DM people and so they feel like they can't delete it. But, you know, you just do need to have a conversation of like, th- this place is the Wild West. You should expect to see the worst things you've ever seen on this platform. And it's like just basically not a safe place for you to be. That- that's what I believe. That's what I would tell, you know, my teens if I had teens. Um But look, we are in a time of uh, tumult and change. The old social network order has been upended, and we are waiting to see what is going to take the place of this thing where we journalists gathered. Uh, Some people still think it could be Mastodon. Some people still think it could be Blue Sky. Some smaller group of people might say, you know what, the heck with this social web, I'm going to start going back to like, Slate.com and other journalists' websites to get their news. Great. Um, Which is like a beautiful thing to do. I wish more people would do it, you know? So I, I think people have options. And, you know, th- this is a really a question for me is, is what people really want because there's a lot of discussion about, like, well, where can I find those news links? And, you know, will Threads be the place for news links? But, you know, you could kind of find news anywhere. I, I think what people really miss is the conversation and the first-person accounts. You know, they want to know how people are talking about the news and they want to get... Um, a sense of what's happening that is a little bit less edited, that feels a little bit more raw. And so like, where is that going to be? And that's, I think the piece of it that, that hasn't settled. And in terms of like what happened today, there's like still a lot of places that'll tell you what happened today.
1: Charlie Warzel at the Atlantic, who you and I both know wrote, wrote something about this and I want to read part to you and get your thought on it. It's worth considering that the possibility that the centrality of social media as we've known it for the past 15 years has come to an end, that this particular window to the world is being slammed shut. To me, that that feels real. And I wonder what you think the next decade of social media might be.
2: I mean, I, I respectfully disagree with Charlie. I think this is really? wishful thinking. Yeah. Like, I think... Um when you think about why social networks exist it's because people have opinions and they like sharing them, (laughs) you know? Um, I don't think anything changed about that. I think the form that, um, that people are like, like the ways in which people can express those opinions, the platforms they express those opinions on, those are changing to some degree, but like, I don't think we're losing places to post. In fact, there are now more places to post today than there were a year ago, and, and, and you know, and by and not just like places to post, but places where lots of influential people are posting. Right. So in in effect, like the reverse has happened. I think you know people want to find a million different ways to mourn the Twitter that was. And they want to find a way to express their exhaustion at the idea of having to start again. And I actually think that um, when you when you read someone, and there are a lot of people, you know, I, I read a similar piece of The New Yorker this week that says social media isn't fun anymore. And I always just think like, how old are these people? I'm going to guess you're in your, your 30s or your 40s, right? And you've sort of already built your clout and you've made your place in the world. And now you're being told you're going to have to go start over somewhere else. And that idea exhausts you profoundly. That's the last thing you wanted to do. It took you 15 years to get your followers on Twitter. Now you have to go do it again on something called Blue Sky and Mastodon? Come on, get out of here, right? But then go talk to a 13-year-old. Are they exhausted at the idea that they're going to have to like go be online? No, they're thrilled to. Ask an eight-year-old what he wants to be when he grows up. He's going to tell you he's a YouTuber. You, you know, <laughs> he, he's going to tell you he wants to be a YouTuber. So like, don't sit here and tell me that the social web is over. Like, The social web is being reborn. And I'm sorry that that makes you tired.
1: So the global town square is dead. Long live 45 different global town squares.
2: Yes and like I you know the, no one is brave enough to write the take that maybe it's a good thing that there are 16 different places to post right like weren't we all supposed to be upset that there were these monolithic platforms and that we were all governed by their rules uh, you know we had no recourse of a content moderation decision went against us weren't we supposed to be upset about the concentration of power well like here's what you asked for there is no longer a concentration of power in social networks and so instead of saying Social networks have no future. I think the more interesting question to ask is, what is the future of these platforms that are being born?
1: Casey Newton, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Casey Newton is the founder and editor of the technology newsletter, Platformer. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We're also a part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back tomorrow with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.
3: Step into the world of power, loyalty.
4: Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's Jurisprudence Editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles. But for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. From the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking try free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much.